0: I praise the Lord for that. How many of you brought your Bible with you tonight? Will you hold up the Word of God all over the building? I want to ask you now to join me way back in the Old Testament tonight, the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 32. The book of Psalms, chapter 32, somewhere right in the middle of your Bible should be the, the book of Psalms, and we're in chapter 32 tonight. And uh, let me get there myself. i tell you what page number it is. Psalms chapter 32, page number 613. And I really want you to listen tonight, if you will. Maybe sit close to somebody if you don't have your Bible. We'll put the verses up on the screens as well. But I really want you to listen to what I have to say tonight, if you will. And I trust the Lord will help it and to use it to be a blessing. 613 Psalms 32. Now, I want to encourage you to be back in church on Wednesday night. And I don't know, but you know, sometimes I get to get a little bit ahead, and I have got a little bit ahead this week, so I'm really excited about what I'm going to say on Wednesday night. I want you to be here and to be a part of the service on Wednesday night. Maybe you don't do Wednesday nights. Why don't you make a point to leave work a little bit early or else just dress for church when you go to work and just come on over here to church after work, all right? And to be a part of our service, 7 o'clock. We're always out by, what, 8, 10, 11:30. 8, I mean, somewhere in between there. We're always out early, get you home early so you can get ready for the next day's work. And I, I want you to come Wednesday night. I've I got something on my heart, and I'm preaching out of 2 Timothy now, and so I hope you'll be here for the message on Wednesday night, all right? Thank you for being here tonight. If you're glad to be here, would you say amen? Psalms chapter 32, let's pray, we'll get started. Father, please bless your word tonight and speak to our hearts, I pray. And Lord, there's somebody, maybe there's a man, maybe there's a woman, maybe there's a teenager sitting right here in this service tonight that really, really needs to hear not what I have to say, but what the word of God has to say tonight. And I pray in this service tonight that somebody's life will be turned around. I pray tonight in this service that somebody will get things straightened out. God, that you'd speak to us. Help us tonight from the Word of God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you think back to last Sunday evening, then you may recall that I began a little short series of sermons that I've entitled, If I Am Saved, Why Am I So Unhappy? If I'm Saved, Why Am I So Unhappy? Once again, I remind us all in here tonight that one of the results, one of the consequences of being saved, one of the outworkings of being saved is something called joy. I mean, you can't get saved and at least at that moment have joy in your heart. I mean, man, if you get saved, there's going to be a little bit of happiness in your heart. As I said a moment ago, the natural outworking of being saved is joy, happiness in our life. The Bible says right here in the book of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 20, the last phrase, Whoso trusteth in the Lord, read this with me. Whoso trusteth in the Lord, now say it, happy is he. In other words, you can't trust the Lord without being happy. The Bible tells us the whole reason that Jesus came into this world was to give us life, but not just life, but life more abundantly. Jesus said in John chapter 10, and verse number 10, the thief cometh not but for to kill, to steal, and destroy. The devil wants to kill you. The devil wants to destroy you. The devil wants to to, to steal from you. But Jesus said, hey, just remember this. I've come that you might have life. But he didn't stop there, did he? But he said, I've come that you might have life more abundantly. Now, when I get that picture in my mind, I get the picture of a cup sitting on a saucer And I see that cup being full running over and the saucer getting filled up because Jesus came to give us not just life but abundant life, overflowing, overflowing life, bountiful life. That leads me to say again, knowing Jesus may not add years to your life, but knowing Jesus will certainly add life to your years. Yeah, Jesus came to give us joy while Jesus was on this earth. Jesus had joy. He really did. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, he was, he was constantly being invited to weddings and feasts and suppers, and the reason that that happened to Jesus was not because he was a religious grunt, grump or a religious grouch. No, sir. I believe that Jesus, while he was on this earth, he didn't walk around with a long face and a depressed disposition. I think Jesus, while he was here on this earth, was a joy. To be around, I read that verse last week about one of those Old Testament prophecies about Jesus when it said that God had anointed him with the oil of gladness. I mean, man, while Jesus was here, can I say it like this? He was a happy Savior. He really was. I know what you're thinking right now. I know you're probably thinking, yeah, but preacher, he didn't have to face what I'm facing in my life. He didn't have to face the struggles that I'm up against. He didn't have to face the problems that I'm facing. No, he had to face what he faced and what he faced compared to what we faced was ramped up on steroids. I mean, you talk about problems. Jesus had problems. He had people constantly around him that was trying to trap him trying to catch him saying something wrong. They were hounding him, man. They they were were constantly trying to find fault with him. I mean, he had problems. He had tension. He had struggles. He had people that was constantly pressing in around him, coupled that with all the problems that he had. And yet, in spite of all that, he maintained joy and he maintained happiness. I mean, even knowing what was waiting on him at the end of life, I don't know. My wife and I were talking about going home today. You know, it's like this. Somebody once said, you know, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. You ever heard that before? I don't mind dying. I just want to be there when it happens. Uh, The truth of the matter is I don't know how I'm going to die. You know, I don't really fear death as such. I know I'm going to heaven. I mean, man, what are you trying to do, threaten me with heaven? I mean, man, I look forward to going to heaven. Man, it's just the process of getting there because I don't know how I'm going to get there. I don't know what's going to take me out of this world. Hopefully the Lord will come and rapture us out of this world. There was the old ladies one time talking, Man said, one of them said to the other, I can't wait. She couldn't hear well. She said, I can't wait for the rupture of the church. Well, rapture or rupture, man, I'm ready to go. I'm just kind of scared about how it's all going to come down. Amen. But Jesus, knowing how it was going to come down, Jesus knew what was waiting for him at the end of life. He could see the agonies and the miseries and the, the, the pain of the cross waiting on him at the end of life's way. And yet the Bible said even going to the cross, he still had joy. In the book of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 2, the Bible said, Looking unto Jesus, the author, and the finisher of our faith, who for thee that was set before him endured the cross. I mean, Jesus looked down through the scope of time and saw you getting saved and me getting saved and us becoming a part of the family of God and going to the cross even brought Jesus joy. So he was a happy Savior. He was a Savior that had joy. And then he looks at you and me and he says this to us in John chapter 15 and verse number 11. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy... In other words, Jesus said, hey, the same kind of joy that I had while I was here I want you to have my joy, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be what? Sounds like to me, Jesus said, I want my people to have joy. Amen? I'm talking about Jesus said, I want you to have the same kind of joy that I have, a continuous joy, a conspicuous joy, and a contagious joy. Jesus said, and Jesus wants us to be happy. Now, I've got a question for you. If all that is true, and it is, if the end result of being saved is a, is a life of happiness and joy and knowing that Jesus wants us to have the same kind of joy that he had, then my question is, then why are so many of us so unhappy? I guarantee you again tonight, there are more unhappy Christians sitting in this room tonight than there are happy Christians. There are more, joy, there are more joyless Christians than there are joyful Christians. Most of us walk around with a tombstone under one arm and a coffin under the other arm and look at a lost world in problems up to their eyeballs and say, hey, y'all want some of this? No, they don't want that. I mean, they already got enough trouble. You know, what? They, when they see us, they, they ought to see people that struggle just like they struggle, that have problems, that have difficulties, that have adversity, that have reversal. They may see all of that, but in the midst of all that, there still ought to be a smile on our face. There still ought to be a spring in our step, and there still ought to be a song in our heart because we ought to have joy. We're the only people on this earth, rightfully, that have the rightful... Uh, the rightful rightful opportunity to have joy. So why are you so unhappy? If you're saved, why are you so unhappy? If you were to come to my office tomorrow and sit down and say, Preacher, I just need somebody to help me. I need some counseling. What I'm doing is on these, uh, these uh, Sunday nights is, man, this is a counseling session. Welcome to Counseling 101. I'm glad you're here. Because if you came to my office tomorrow and sat down and said, Preacher, I'm one of the most miserable people on this earth, I would start with you where I started last week. Last week I said, Maybe you're unhappy, number one, because you are unsure of your salvation. And I would start right there. I would say, Hey, why don't you tell me about getting saved? Tell me about how you got saved. Tell me what all happened when you got saved. And then I'd probably follow that question up uh, with this question, and ask this. Now, if you died today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? Because let me tell you something. Doubt and joy can't live in the same heart. If you don't know for sure that you're saved, you can't have the joy that Jesus intends for you to have unless, until you get it settled that I'm saved and on my way to heaven because hear me and hear me well. When doubt moves in, joy moves out. Maybe it's because you're unsure of your salvation. Let me ask you tonight if you had to die On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 is being absolutely no way. 10 is being absolutely positively sure. If you had to die tonight, how sure are you on that scale? Where do you fall? Maybe you sit here tonight and say, Preacher, you know something? I had a pretty good week. I'd probably be an 8.5 on that scale. That's not good enough. You say, I've even had a better week than I've had last couple of weeks. I'd be a a 9.7. No, sir, that's not what God intends for you to have. God wants you to know for sure that you're saved. Somebody says, Preacher, you can't really know that for sure until after you die. Can I tell you this? That is too late. You need to know before you die that when you die, you're going to heaven. Maybe your, maybe your problem, I mean, let's just... Maybe, maybe the whole problem is you're unsure of your salvation. In just a few minutes, I'm going to invite you. I'm going to give you an invitation to walk down here and get it nailed down tonight. January the, January the 19th, 2020, this is the night I got it settled. I'm saved and on my way to heaven. You need to do that tonight. But I got to take this further now because once we get that, that problem out of the way, then maybe this is the reason that you're saved and not, not happy. Maybe your problem tonight is unconfessed sin. Maybe tonight you're sitting here in this room and maybe your problem tonight is this. You've got something tucked away in your heart. You, you've got something in your life going on or has gone on that is contrary to the Word of God. You've got something in your life going on that's contrary to the will of God for your life, and you have tucked that away in your heart. You have, you've concealed that. You've covered it up in your heart. And I want to tell you something. Unconfessed sin will cause a child of God not to be happy. Can I say it like this, going back to that unsure salvation? A good sign that you are saved is when you do sin, it bothers you. Amen. Now, I had you to open your Bible tonight to Psalms chapter 32, and there's a reason for that. Because if you'll look, at, i got an old Scofield Bible. Right under Psalms 32, it says this, a Psalm of David. Is that what your Bible said? A Psalm of David. And then right out beside of it, it's got a, a, a word called masculine. And what that means is instruction. And what we have here in Psalms 32 is a psalm that was written... By King David. Now, when you talk about King David in the Bible, there are always two names you associate with David. One is Goliath. And the other is Bathsheba. Goliath, David and Goliath, oh, Goliath represents the greatest victory in the life of David. Buddy, when David killed Goliath, he was at the very pinnacle, the very zenith, the very the very mountaintop of his life. David, after he killed Goliath, went from an absolute nobody from nowhere. Overnight, he became the most, popular land in all, the most popular man in all the land of Israel. That's right. I mean, buddy, that night when David killed Goliath, the next day they were selling G.I. David does at Walmart. Every little boy was in the backyard. They wanted to grow up to be just like David. I mean, buddy, when David killed Goliath, it was the greatest victory of his life. And can I say this? But when we think of that name Bathsheba, that represents the greatest defeat in the life of King David. She represents the lowest point of his life. When we think about David and Goliath, we think about the giant that David slew. But when we think about David and Bathsheba, we think about the giant that slew David. Amen. God's man, a man after God's own heart, bit the dust after he sinned. You know, prior to the sin of uh, David with Bathsheba, David was at the top of the world. That's right. His approval rating in the land of Israel was 100%. He'd never been defeated militarily. The economy under David's leadership is hitting on all eight cylinders. The nation of Israel is the world's superpower of its day. The nation of Israel under David's leadership is the epitome of the entire world. And David is at the prime of his life. David, before his sin with Bathsheba, was 50 years old. He was the number one songwriter in all the land of Israel. He was the number one soldier in all the land of Israel. But after David sinned with Bathsheba, he became the number one sinner. In all the land of Israel, David sinned, David sinned big time, David messed up. and let me tell you something: when David sinned, his whole world came crashing down all around him, because after his sin with Bathsheba, his life would never be the same. But here's the thing about it: if you're not careful, when you read over in Second Samuel, chapter 11 and chapter 12 about David's sin. I mean, you kind of get the idea that David sinned, ran to God with his sin, and I mean, it was just all, in just a matter of a few hours, it was over with. But it didn't work that way. That's right. You know, most people think that after David sinned with Bathsheba, that it was a whole year before he got right with God. I mean, don't ever think David sinned and before the sun came up the next morning, before he ate breakfast, he went to his bedroom, got down on his knees and confessed his sin and heard these words from God right here in 2 Samuel 12, the Lord also had put away thy sin. It wasn't that fast. It didn't work quite like that. You see, David sinned with Bathsheba and then David went to work to cover up his sin. You remember that? He had to call Uriah home from the battlefield. He had to go through several steps. Trying to get Uriah to go home to spend some time with his wife. And then, when he saw that wasn't going to work several days later, then he had to write out the execution certificate for Uriah to tell Joab to set him at the forefront of the hottest battle and retire, retreat from him, and let him get killed. That took several days. And then we know that David and Bathsheba, there was out of that adulterous relationship, there was a baby conceived. And we all know that it takes nine months for babies to be born. So I don't think I'm wrong to say. David sinned, and for one year, he didn't say anything to God about his sin. He sinned. He tucked it away in his heart. He concealed it. He covered it up. He didn't say anything. He pleaded the Fifth Amendment and didn't say anything about it. Not for a whole year. Now, if you doubt that, look in Psalms 32 and verse number 3 at the first four words. When I kept silence. David sinned. And instead of running to God with his sin, he ran from God with his sin. Can I, always, can I say this? The most important move you and I will ever make in our Christian life is the move that we make right after we sin. I've got to say that one more time, and you may even want to write that down, <laughs> not because I said it, but because it's true, but the most important move you're ever going to make in your life I'll ever make in my life is the move that we make right after we sin. You know what we need to do? We need to gather up that sin and get to God with it. But most of the time, we gather up that sin and run to the devil with it. You've heard me say this before, but why is it when men start having electrical problems, they run to an electrician? Why is it when they start having plumbing problems, they run to a plumber? Why is it when they start having physical problems, they run to a doctor? When they have legal problems, they run to a lawyer. But when they have sin problems, they run to the devil. Hey, he's not going to make it any better for you. No, sir. What you ought to do is gather up that sin and head to Jesus. Amen. You know why? They sang about it a moment ago. There's mercy on his face, there's grace in his words, there's forgiveness. With the Lord Jesus, David is in a mess. And in this chapter, Psalms chapter 32, David is writing in this chapter how he feels or how he felt for that year, according to verse 3, when he kept silence. And maybe I'm speaking to somebody right here in this room tonight. And you sit here and you're saved and you know you're saved, but you're one of the most miserable people in this world. And maybe it's because you got something hidden in your heart. Your wife don't know about it. Your husband don't know about it. Your children don't know about it. Your mom and your daddy don't know about it. Your best friend don't know about it. But I'm here to tell you, there's a God up in heaven. The eyes of the Lord, Proverbs 15:3, are in every place beholding the good and the evil. You and I don't get by with a thing. What we think is done in the darkest of nights will be covered in the guise of darkness. But I'm here to tell you, there's a God who can see through the darkness. Amen. And maybe what you ought to do tonight is just gather up that sin and say, I'm tired of living like this. I'm tired of the misery that I'm feeling in my soul. I'm going to get this settled tonight. I'm going to gather up that unconfessed sin. I'm going to bring it to Jesus. I want you to join me in this text tonight. I have three things to say. It's 623. Three things to say in this text about David while he kept silent. Can I tell you something? When you and I sin, don't you plead the fifth. You have the right to remain silent. Let me tell you something. If you belong to Jesus, you don't have the right to remain silent. If you're a child of God, he owns us. We don't have the right to remain silent. And anything that may be said, that we may say may be used against us in the court of law, he already knows it. I love Adam 12. Do you all like Adam 12? They always read people their rights. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say may be used against you in the court of law, if you give up that right to remain silent. You know how all that goes. I could say it, but I don't want to. Impress you with my one out of 12 trivia quotations. Don't stay silent. Let me tell you what silence will do to you when you sin. It'll bring misery in your life. Let's look at three things. First of all, I want you to see number one, that when David sinned, this one year of silence, keeping that sin unconfessed, number one, David was a bothered man. He was a bothered man. You know, You can't read some of the things that David says about himself in this chapter without reaching the conclusion that David during that year of silence was a miserable mess of a man. You talk about living misery. There are two statements really found in this text that really clues us in on how David felt during that year when he kept silent about a sin. Look at verse number 3, when I kept silence. Here's what David said. My bones waxed old through my roaring all the, uh, all the day long. Verse th- 4, for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought. I'm telling you, it sounds like he was a pretty miserable man because of his unconfessed sin. I see two things in this text. Look at verse 3, number 1. I see that David was depressed in his spirit. Notice in verse number 3, the Bible said, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day. David said, I just hurt. I mean, everywhere I, everywhere, everywhere, in my body, I hurt because of my sin. Verse number 4 says, day and night, my hand was heavy upon me. Now, you've got to understand this. Before David sin with Bathsheba, his life was pretty much characterized by health and by happiness. He was a, he was a healthy man. I mean, you can't read his life story over in First and Second Samuel without reaching the conclusion, man, that David was a healthy, robust, vivacious, energetic. Man, I mean, man, he, he he watched sheep for crying out loud. He fought with bears and lions. He, he got the victory over Goliath. I mean, man, pretty much David was a healthy man. He was full of energy and he was full of, full of life. He was a healthy man before his sin. And then he was a happy man before his sin. Over in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 23, he is called the sweet psalmist, of Israel. David would play his harp and it would brighten the dark, diminished soul of King Saul. David was a man that was so loved by others that they were willing to follow him, not because he had a, a long face and a sad disposition, but he was a man with a great spirit. He was a leader with many followers because of his demeanor. Let me tell you something before he sinned and before he kept silent about it, he was a healthy man. And he was a happy man. But then in verse 3 and verse 4, it sounds like he's anything but healthy and anything but happy. It sounds like to me in verse number 3 and verse 4, he's sick and he's sad. Can I tell you something? That's what sin will do to you. It'll, make, it'll take you from healthy and happy to sickness and sadness. A lot of people, look this way, a lot of people got it all wrong. Now, we know that when we get saved, God puts us in his hand, right? Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them. John 10, 28, out of mind. So when we get saved, God puts us in his hand. But here's where people mess up. A lot of people think that when we sin, here's what God does. We fall out of the hand of God. But that's not what the Bible says. Here we are in the hand of God, and when we sin, God don't do this. Here's what God does. God does God does this. You see, David is feeling the heavy hand of a holy God bearing down on him. Hey, let me tell you something. When you sin, God tightens his grip. Hey, when you and I see and listen, God squeezes us. God puts the pressure on us. God's trying to bear down on us. You know why? God wants us to make it right with Him. David is depressed, depressed in spirit. But if you look again at verse number four, He's also dry in soul. Look again at verse number four. He said, This, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. What he's saying is this, on the inside of him is dry as dust. This guy was the guy who formerly said this, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Psalms One. This guy's the same guy that said in Psalms 84 and verse number 10, a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. And he said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents. There was always something going on in David's soul. I mean, man, David uh, wrote the Psalms, and, and David David had the touch of God on his life. David felt the presence of God. But now that he's sinned, and now that he's, uncon- he's kept that sin silent, boy, I'm going to tell you something. God had taken away the moisture of his soul. And the Bible said it has turned into the drought of summer. Didn't feel anything anymore. Can I stop and say this tonight? The most miserable person in the world is not the lost person that's without God. Let me tell you, the most miserable person in this world is the person on this earth who belongs to God, but they're keeping silent about their sin. And God is putting the pressure on. I'm speaking to somebody in this room tonight It's fixing to mess up your life. I'm talking to somebody in this room that may be about to make some bad choices. Hey, I'm telling you tonight, please listen, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to turn your back on God, to fulfill a, the, 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 the desire of your flesh, the lust of your flesh. I'm telling you, it may be excitement for exciting just a little while, but I'm here to tell you, the price that you'll pay is far greater than you want to pay. Yes, sir. David has drought in his soul. Can I stop and say this tonight? When God saved you and me, He didn't fix us where we couldn't sin, but He sure did fix us where we couldn't enjoy our sin. And hear me hear me well when I make this statement. If you've got dirt in your heart, there'll be drought in your soul. A lot of people come to church and say, man, I don't get anything out of it. We need some new songs in the choir. Or we need a a new preacher in the pulpit because I don't get anything out of it anymore. Hey, maybe the problem's not with the choir. Hey, maybe the problem's not that we need a change of scenery in the pulpit. Maybe what you ought to do is get right with God because, friend, I'm here to tell you, when you turn your back on God and you keep silent about it, if you've got dirt in your heart, there'll be drought in your soul. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, David said. He was a bothered man. A good sign you're saved is when you sin, you're bothered by it. I tell you what bothers me, people can go out and live like hell and live like the devil and never be bothered about it. Put selfies on the Internet or whatever you call that crazy thing take pictures of himself in places they ought not be, doing things with alcohol sitting on the table, and they're smiling. You hear me and hear me well, friend. If you're born again, if you're saved, that ought to bother you. Smile about it, my hind leg. You ought to be tore up about it. Our sin put the Savior on the cross. Hey, I want to echo the words of James. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness because I'm here to tell you, fools make a mock at sin. Proverbs fourteen nine. David was a bothered man. Unconfessed sin ought to bother you. If you can go out and sin and laugh about it and joke about it and it don't grieve you, that's a good indication you need to get born again. Amen. He was a bothered man. Can I say number two? He was a broken man. He was broken. He was bothered, but he was broken. You see, between verse 3 and verse number 4, and when we come to verse number 5, something happens to David. Because there in verse number 5, David said this, man, I couldn't take it anymore. (laughs) I was so miserable. God was bearing down. God was squeezing me. God was putting the pressure on me. I couldn't stand it. And David said, I finally got to the place. I threw up my hands and said, I'm tired of living like this. I've got to have some help. And verse number 5, the Bible said, I acknowledge my sin unto the Lord. Boy, I want to tell you, I think business picked up David's soul when he acknowledged his sin unto thee. Can I say it like this? Look at verse verse 3 and verse number 4. I think we could say David is, is under conviction. A- and David's conviction led to David's contrition. His heart is broke. And David's conviction, which led to his contrition, has now led to his confession. In verse number 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. In other words, watch this. David wasn't blaming Bathsheba for what happened. David didn't say, well, bless God, she ought not been out in the backyard taking a bath to start with. I mean, what does she expect? She gets out there, not a stitch of clothes on, out there where everybody can see her. It's her fault I'm in this mess. David didn't say anything about that. He said, I acknowledge my sin. I confess my transgression. And friend, it'll be a good day in your life when you want to stop blaming everybody. Everybody else, and start pointing the finger at the person who's really guilty, and that is ourselves tonight. You can blame it on me, blame it on God, blame it on the deacons, blame it on this one, blame it on your wife, blame it on your husband. You can play the blame game, but, buddy, when it comes to getting right with God, you're going to have to sit all that down and say, God, it's me. Oh, God, I've messed up. It's my sin. I acknowledge my transgression before you. David's conviction led to his contrition, and his contrition led to his confession. David said, I'm tired of living like this. Aren't you tired? Aren't you tired? Aren't you miserable? I mean, aren't you, just, aren't you to the point that you just don't feel like you can take another step? And David cries out to God, and I think in verse number 5, watch this, what he's doing is he's finally... Handing to God the key to that door and room in his heart where that adultery is tucked away. Hey, when's the last time you come to God and give God all the keys to every room of your heart? You said, God, here's the keys. You go in there and clean out what needs to be cleaned out. God, get the trash, get the garbage, get the mess. Get get all the, the filth that I've created and accumulated in my life. Here's the key. A lot of us want to say, God, you can have this room. You can have this room. God, you can take this room, but this room, its no trespassing, God. I'm keeping the key to that room. And I'm here to tell you, as long as you've got the key to that room in your pocket, God and you will never have joy in your heart. David gave God the key to that room where that mess was tucked away. Amen. Won't you come tonight and say, God, here's the key to that room that I've been keeping you out of. God, here's the key to that lust in my heart. It's that room where that lust is abiding. Where that stuff I've been staring at on the computer. God, here's the key to that. Lord, here's what I've been doing, and God, here's the key that unlocks the door that gets into the room where that stuff is at. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I've kept you locked out. Amen. David was a bothered man. David was a broken man. Before I leave this, I've got to say one word. There is a difference between Holy Spirit conviction and satanic accusation. Big difference. Let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit conviction, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin that we haven't confessed. But Satan accuses us of sins that we have confessed. Big difference. And the best way to keep guilt out of your heart and your life is get to God with your sin before the devil does. The most important move you'll ever make in your life is the move that you make right after you sin. Get to God with your sin. When you sin, run to God with it. Because if, if the devil gets there for you, do, he's going to start bringing that accusation in your life. Hey, listen, there's a God. God wants to forgive you. David was a bothered man. David was a broken man. But can I say this? David was a blessed man. Look how he starts this psalm. Look at verse 1. Blessed, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is good. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no God. You know how he starts this psalm? By the way, he's already got it right. And you remember over in Psalms 51, let me see if I can quote it to you, but in Psalms 51, And I want to say it begins about verse 11, but it might be verse number 10. But David said this, Lord, cast cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto you. You know what I think David is doing? He's making good on that promise. God, if you'll forgive me, I'm going to write down my experiences because maybe it will help somebody else along life's journey. And David just begins this psalm by saying this blessing. You know what that word means? It's really a plural, and it really means like in our language, it would be like happy, happy. How many of you all remember Duck Dynasty? Y'all still watch it? Right after wrestling goes off, I know you do. You watch wrestling, and right after wrestling goes off, Duck Dynasty I know because I watch it much. No, I'm kidding. I don't do that. But you remember that old boy on Duck Dynasty? He used to, he was always so dry, but he'd say this, happy, happy, happy. You remember that? You want to be happy, happy, happy. Bundle up your sin and bring it to God. Because conviction leads to contrition, contrition leads to confession, and confession leads to cleansing. And when we bring it to God, we can say these words, Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. How do you say that verse number one? Blessed is he whose transgression is, is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Boy, I like that, don't you? But if you'll bring it to Jesus... David said, God, one of the things I've been missing this whole time is my joy. Restore unto me the joy, not salvation. He didn't need God to resave him again. Can I have an amen on that? But what he did need was for God to give him back his joy. And maybe one of the reasons you're so unhappy is because there's a room in your heart and you won't give God the key to it. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father.